0: Section 4 of Limbo This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Doc D. L. Martin Limbo by Aldous Huxley Farcical History of Richard Greenow, Chapters 7, 8, and 9 7 Millicent was organizing a hospital supply depot, organizing indefatigably, from morning till night. It was October. Dick had not seen his sister since those first hours of the war in Scotland. He had had too much to think about these last months to pay attention to anyone but himself. Today, at last, he decided that he would go and pay her a visit. Millicent had commandeered a large house in Kensington from a family of Jews who were anxious to live down a deplorable name by a display of patriotism. Dick found her sitting there in her office, young, formidable, beautiful, severe, at a big desk covered with papers. Well, said Dick, you're winning the war, I see. You, I gather, are not, Millicent replied. I believe in the things I always believed in. So do I. But in a different way, my dear, in a different way, said Dick sadly. There was a silence. Had we better quarrel? Millicent asked meditatively. I think we can manage with nothing worse than a coolness for the duration. Very well, a coolness. A smoldering coolness. Good, said Millicent briskly. Let it start smoldering at once. I must get on with my work. Goodbye, Dick. God bless you. Let me know sometimes how you get on. No need to ask how you get on, said Dick with a smile as he shook her hand. I know by experience that you always get on, only too well, ruthlessly well. He went out. Millicent returned to her letters with concentrated ardor. A frown puckered the skin between her eyebrows. Probably, Dick reflected as he made his way down the stairs, he wouldn't see her again for a year or so. He couldn't honestly say that it affected him much. Other people became daily more and more like ghosts, unreal, thin, vaporous, while every hour the consciousness of himself grew more intense and all-absorbing. The only person who was more than a shadow to him now was Hyman of the Weekly International. In those first horrible months of the war, when he was wrestling with Pearl Belair's and failing to cast her out, it was Hyman who kept him from melancholy and suicide. Hyman made him write a long article every week, dragged him into the office to do sub-editorial work, kept him so busy that there were long hours when he had no time to brood over his own insoluble problems. And his enthusiasm was so passionate and sincere that sometimes even dick was infected by it he could believe that life was worth living and the cause worth fighting for but not for long for the devil would return insistent and untiring pearl berlairs was greedy for life she was not content with her short midnight hours she wanted the freedom of whole days And whenever Dick was overtired, or ill, or nervous, she leapt upon him and stamped him out of existence, till enough strength came back for him to reassert his personality. And the articles she wrote, the short stories, the recruiting songs, Dick dared not read them. They were terrible. Terrible! 8. The months passed by. The longer the war lasted, the longer it seemed likely to last. Dick supported life somehow. Then came the menace of conscription. The Weekly International organized a great anti-conscription campaign in which Hyman and Dick were the leading spirits. Dick was almost happy. This kind of active work was new to him, and he enjoyed it, finding it exciting and at the same time sedative. For a self-absorbed and brooding mind, pain itself is an anodyne. He enjoyed his incessant journeys his speech-making to queer audiences in obscure halls and chapels. He liked talking with earnest members of impossible Christian sects, pacifists who took not the faintest interest in the welfare of humanity at large, but were wholly absorbed in the salvation of their own souls and in keeping their consciences clear from the faintest trace of blood-guiltiness. He enjoyed the sense of power which came to him, When he roused the passion of the crowd to enthusiastic assent or breasted the storm of antagonism, he enjoyed everything, even getting a bloody nose from a patriot hired and intoxicated by a great evening paper to break up one of his meetings. It all seemed tremendously exciting and important at the time, and yet when, in quiet moments, he came to look back on his days of activity, they seemed utterly empty and futile. What was left of them nothing nothing at all the momentary intoxication had died away the stirred ants nest had gone back to normal life futility of action there was nothing permanent or decent or worthwhile except thought and of that he was almost incapable now his mind when it was not occupied by the immediate and actual turned inward morbidly upon itself He looked at the manuscript of his book and wondered whether he would ever be able to go on with it. It seemed doubtful. Was he then condemned to pass the rest of his existence, enslaved to the beastliness and futility of mere quotidian action? And even in action his powers were limited. If he exerted himself too much, and the limits of fatigue were soon reached, Pearl Berler's, watching perpetually like a hungry tigress, for her opportunity leapt upon him and took possession of his conscious faculties and then it might be for a matter of hours or of days he was lost blotted off the register of living souls while she performed with intense and hideous industry her self-appointed task more than once his anti-conscription campaigns had been cut short and he himself had suddenly disappeared from public life to return with the vaguest stories of illness or private affairs stories that made his friends shake their heads and wonder which it was among the noble army of vices that poor dick greenow was so mysteriously addicted to some said drink some said women some said opium and some hinted at things infinitely darker and more horrid. Hyman asked him point-blank what it was, one morning when he returned to the office after three days' unaccountable absence. Dick blushed painfully. It isn't anything you think, he said. What is it, then? Hyman insisted. I can't tell you, Dick replied desperately and in torture, but I swear it's nothing discreditable. I beg you won't ask me any more. Hyman had to pretend to be satisfied with that. Nine. A tactical move in the anti-conscription campaign was the foundation of a club, a place where people with pacific or generally advanced ideas could congregate. A club like this would soon be the intellectual center of London, said Hyman, ever sanguine. Dick shrugged his shoulders. He had a wide experience of pacifists. If you bring people together, Hyman went on, they encourage one another to be bold, strengthen one another's faith. Yes, said Dick dyspeptically, when they're in a herd, they can believe that they're much more numerous and important than they really are. But man, they are numerous, they are important, Hyman shouted and gesticulated. Dick allowed himself to be persuaded into an optimism which he knew to be ill-founded. The consolations of religion do not console the less efficaciously for being illusory. It was a long time before they could think of a suitable name for their club. Dick suggested that it should be called the Sclopus Club. Such a lovely name, he explained. Sclopus, Sclopus, it tastes precious in the mouth. But the rest of the committee would not hear of it. They wanted a name that meant something. One lady suggested that it should be called the Everyman Club. Dick objected with passion. It makes one shudder, he said. The lady thought it was a beautiful and uplifting name, but as Mr. Greenow was so strongly opposed, she wouldn't press the claims of Everyman. Hyman wanted to call it the Pacifist Club, but that was judged too provocative. Finally, they agreed to call it the Novemberist Club because it was November and they could think of no better title. The inaugural dinner of the Novemberist Club was held at Piccolomini's Restaurant. Piccolomini is in, but not exactly of, Soho, for it is a cross between a Soho restaurant and a corner house, a hybrid which combines the worst qualities of both parents, the dirt and inefficiency of Soho, The size and vulgarity of Lyon. There is a large upper chamber reserved for agapes. Here, one wet and dismal winter's evening, the Novembrists assembled. Dick arrived early, and from his place near the door he watched his fellow members come in. He didn't much like the look of them. Middle class. Was what he found himself thinking, and he had to admit when his conscience reproached him for it that he did not like the middle classes, the lower middle classes, the lower classes. He was, there was no denying it, a bloodsucker at heart, cultured and intelligent, perhaps, but a bloodsucker none the less. The meal began, everything about it was profoundly suspect. The spoons were made of some pale, pinch metal, very light and flimsy. One expected them to melt in the soup, or one would have done if the soup had been even tepid. The food was thick and greasy. Dick wondered what it really looked like under the concealing sauces. The wine left an indescribable taste that lingered on the palate, like the savor of brass or of charcoal fumes. From childhood upwards Dick had suffered from the intensity of his visceral reactions to emotion. Fear and shyness were apt to make him feel very sick, and disgust produced in him a sensation of intolerable queasiness. Disgust had seized upon his mind to-night. He grew paler with the arrival of every dish, and the wine, instead of cheering him, made him feel much worse. His neighbors to right and left ate with revolting heartiness. On one side sat Miss Gibbs, garishly dressed in ill-assorted colors that might be called futuristic. On the other was Mr. Something in pince-nez, rather ambrosial about the hair. Mr. Something was a poet, or so the man who introduced them had said. Miss Gibbs was just an ordinary member of the intelligentsia, like the rest of us the lower classes the lower classes are you interested in the modern theater asked mr something in his mellow voice too mellow oh much too mellow passively said dick so am i said mr thingamy i am a vice president of the craftsman's league of joy which perhaps you may have heard of dick shook his head this was going to be terrible the objects of the craftsman's league of joy mr thin continued or rather one of the objects for it has many is to establish little theatres in every town and village in england where simple uplifting beautiful plays might be acted the people have no joy they have the cinema and the music hall said dick he was filled with a sudden senseless irritation they get all the joy they want out of the jokes of the comics and the legs of the women ah but that is an impure joy mr what's-his-name protested impure purple herbert spencer's favourite colour flashed irrelevantly through dick's brain well speaking for myself he said aloud I know I get more joy out of a good pair of legs than out of any number of uplifting plays of the kind they'd be sure to act in your little theaters. The people ask for sex, and you give them a stone. How was it, he wondered, that the right opinions in the mouths of these people sounded so horribly cheap and wrong? They degraded what was noble. Beauty became fly-blown at their touch. Their intellectual tradition was all wrong lower classes. It always came back to that. When they talked about war and the international, Dick felt a hot geyser of chauvinism bubbling up in his breast. In order to say nothing stupid, he refrained from speaking at all. Miss Gibbs switched the conversation on to art. She admired all the right people. Dick told her that he thought Sir Luke Field to be the best modern artist But his irritation knew no bounds when he found out a little later that Mr. Something had read the poems of Falk Grival, Lord Brooke. He felt inclined to say, You may have read them, but of course you can't understand or appreciate them. Lower classes. How clear and splendid were the ideas of right and justice. If only one could filter away the contaminating human element. Reason compelled him to believe in democracy in internationalism, in revolution. Morality demanded justice for the oppressed, but neither morality nor reason would ever bring him to take pleasure in the company of democrats or revolutionaries or make him find the oppressed individually any less antipathetic. At the end of this nauseating meal, Dick was called on to make a speech. Rising to his feet, he began stammering and hesitating. He felt like an imbecile. Then suddenly inspiration came. The great religious ideas of justice and democracy swept like a rushing wind through his mind, purging it of all insignificant human and personal preferences or dislikes. He was filled with Pentecostal fire. He spoke in a white heat of intellectual passion, dominating his hearers, infecting them with his own high enthusiasm. He sat down amid cheers. Miss Gibbs and Mr. Thingummy leaned towards him with flushed, shining faces. That was wonderful, Mr. Greenow. I've never heard anything like it, exclaimed Miss Gibbs, with genuine, unflattering enthusiasm. Mr. Thing said something poetical about a trumpet call. Dick looked from one to the other with blank and fishy eyes. So it was for these creatures he had been speaking. Good God. End of section 4